Well, are you ready to study in the Gospel of Mark again, chapter 3 this week? Oh, yeah. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 3, and this particular chapter, I'm normally a a pretty big fan of the chapter breaks in the Gospel of Mark, but this is one where I probably would have made the chapter division for chapter 2 a little bit later, because these first six verses, I think, are really kind of a continuation of uh, what finished off at the end of chapter 3, where Jesus ruffles the feathers of some of the religious elite of the day pertaining to things uh, that had to do with their traditions and uh, their man-made rules, uh, specifically uh, rules and traditions concerning the Sabbath. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, verses 1 through 6, uh, it's more of that. And I don't know that this is necessarily the same Sabbath day. It probably is uh, maybe the following Sabbath or a, a, a different Sabbath day. Um, but here's the controversy. Mark 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, and to know who the they is, you probably would need to look back at the end of chapter 2, and it's the Pharisees, it's some of the scribes, it's it's some of these guys that uh, were, up to that point, had been looked to as being you know the authorities when it comes to all matters of, of religion, they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And why? So that they might accuse him. Mm. Let's just stop right there. A uh, couple of things worth uh, pointing out. Uh, this guy with the withered hand, um, I don't entirely know what that means. Um, I don't know if that means maybe his hand was paralyzed, maybe it was you know atrophied and kind of drawn up in some way. Um, Luke's account actually specifically says that it was his right hand. Yeah. And if the law of kind of averages are to be used, you know, most people are right-handed. And I think the fact that Luke is pointing that out probably means that this was a right-handed man, which means if he was a right-handed man and that hand had this affliction, whatever it was, uh, then that severely disabled him. It probably meant he wasn't able to do work, mm-hmm. uh, amongst other things. Um, and so this is a guy that's, you know, he's got some real problems, uh, and that would have caused some real pain. I am impressed with the fact that, uh, verse one, Jesus is not afraid to go right back into the synagogue where he's already ruffled some feathers, uh, you know, once or twice before here in Mark, uh, and he's willing to go right back in there. And actually I, I, I say that about him being not afraid. That's probably one of the things that stands out to me the most here in chapter three is just how brave and courageous Jesus is going to be. We're going to see him like stand up to different people and to different things that lots of times people and us, uh, we allow fear to get the best of us. And Jesus is going to stand up, and he's not going to be afraid. And so right here from the get-go, he's not afraid to walk right back into the synagogue, and he's going to do something that he knows already is going to make some people mad. Yeah. and verse 2 uh, makes that clear, that he knew people were watching him, and they were watching him for the specific purpose uh, of accusing him. This is not like you know we're watching him to, um, you know, to learn from him, you know, the way Paul talks about you know, uh, to observe him and to imitate his example. No, this is like a sinister scrutiny. These guys have a very ill heart towards Jesus. Yes. That's something that we've already seen in the the short time that we've spent in the book of Mark so far is just that these guys' eyes are not they're not looking with spiritual eyes. They're looking they're looking with eyes of condemnation. Yeah. They're looking specifically to to condemn this guy. They're not trying to help him. They're not trying to you know, if, even if he was a sinner or a reprobate or a liar or a false prophet, they're not trying to to, to deliver this guy, they're they're trying to you know off with his head the best yeah. that they can do. That's the that's the funny thing about it is that like they don't want him to break their traditions. Yeah. But the way that they're watching him, that the text says that they're watching him in order to accuse him, it's like they don't want him to do it, but they do want him to do it mm-hmm. because they want to be able to you know have the aha gotcha moment, uh, which just. That alone ought to just speak to a person to say, you know what, there's just maybe something a little bit uh, double-talky here about my motives. There's some hypocrisy yeah. at work. And the Bible speaks again and again about how if you don't abide in the will of God that you're reduced to absurdity. Like you're, you're, These guys are double-minded and their motives are all wrong, so they're split. Yeah, they, they, they want them to stop, but they also kind of want them to keep doing this so yeah. that they can 
figure out something he's doing wrong. Little do they know, Jesus is thinking ahead. Like you said, he's he's got way more foresight than they do. That's right. And, you know, we noticed in the last chapter uh, when Jesus healed the man, the paralytic, you know, and all the people that were standing there and they were saying things in their mind, they were thinking things, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. It doesn't say that again here, but it's evident that he knew what these people were thinking. Because verse 3, he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. I, I think that probably indicates all right. So Jesus comes into the synagogue. I don't know where this guy is. Maybe he's he might be at the back of the room. Uh, and it's like, hey, you, you come here. You come up here. I, I'm, I'm going to use you as a demonstration here. You get up here because I know what some people here are thinking, and I'm going to use this as an object lesson, and you're going to actually be you know, the, the object here. And so he says then to them, to all the scrutinous guys, verse 4, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, what Jesus really presents there is kind of some impossible questions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's, you know, no matter how they answer this, uh, they're, they're going to be wrong. Yeah, they're, they're gonna they're gonna condemn themselves uh, in in one way or the other. If they answer uh, that it's uh, that it's lawful to to do harm or to kill, then then actually they're accusing themselves. And if they answer, well, it's lawful to do good or to save life, then what they're doing is they're affirming Jesus, and also it means they're accusing themselves because they're not doing the things that they should be doing. Uh, and Which so, again, the thing we just talked about is that if they're really going to be these spiritual, you know, uh, titans, if they're such such spiritual monoliths, then why are they not helping people? Why are they looking to condemn people? Yeah. Uh, why is that their goal here? Yeah, and it's and the truth is, you know, for the Pharisees uh, and these these sects of the Jews, um, religion to many of them had been reduced to just a, a show. And it was a pretense. It was a parade, particularly the Sabbath day. Think about it. They had, they probably looked forward to the Sabbath day every week because that's the day when we can all come out in public view. We're going to come to the synagogue and we're going to get to parade our our system of self righteous religion. And everybody's going to be so impressed with all of the different you know caveats and rules that we've piled on top of God's law. And look at how perfectly perfect we're keeping all these things and uh it was just an opportunity to to be a show and that's what much of their religion had been been reduced to i, I should point out here and i should have done this a little bit earlier but, but there is good evidence there's some writing of the rabbis and so forth and and i think there's even some stuff in the talmud that says that it was okay to help somebody who had a life-threatening injury on the sabbath day mm -hmm. the pharisees were okay with that like if you're on the brink of death you know, if you're hemorrhaging to death, okay, it's okay to administer aid to somebody like that on the Sabbath day. This, though, is different. This is a different test. The man with the withered hand, he's not, he's not dying. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a disability for him, but he's not, you know, on the brink of death from it. And so the question is, you know, what's Jesus going to do with this guy? You know, they're watching, all right, we know this guy, he doesn't meet that criteria, so what's he going to do with this fella here? Jesus could very easily, if he was a coward, the easy thing for Jesus to do would be to just go to this guy and say, you know, hey, buddy, withered hand fella. Um, it's Carter. Yeah, meet me out back, and I'll, I'll, I'll take care of you. I just, I just don't want these guys to see it. Or he could just say to him, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to come back and see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow's not the Sabbath. It'll be all right to do something then. Um, but that's why I'm impressed with the courage of Jesus here. He's not worried about that. Uh, he realizes that actually what he's doing here that it's not a violation of the Sabbath, that it is lawful. And really what I think Jesus is just trying to rail against in these first six verses is against man-made religion. Yeah, That's what makes him, verse 5, when he looks around the room and he has anger at them. He is grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he tells the man to stretch out his hand and he stretches it out and his hand is restored. I think what made Jesus angry here. And what caused him to be grieved in his heart. So that probably speaks to, all right, there's the emotion of anger, but it's also kind of tempered with this grief and, like, just sorrow at, like, th these people have made a mess of something that God intended to be good um, because of their own man-made rules. And Jesus is, he's just not going to stand for that. This is the, in, this, it's, it's an inflexible 
traditionalism that's causing Jesus this pain, I think. Uh, and that's definitely not something that we're immune to today in the church. That, that it, if we start, you know, venerating and lifting up our traditions like an idol, uh, or, or even uh, keeping all the rules or our appearances of righteousness, if that's, if that's, if that, that, that can become an idol to us, and that's maybe one of the shiniest idols there is. Yeah. It, you, you almost can absolve yourself by saying, I'm being religious. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think about just the, the the traditions that we have and how sometimes those become law to us. I, I remember being in a gospel meeting. Uh, I won't say where it was uh, or even when it was because I don't want to <laughs> narrow things down and make anybody think ill of this congregation or this sister in this congregation. But there was a visitor one night, and this person was not a Christian. They uh, they came into the assembly. It was a woman, and she was wearing uh, she was wearing a shirt. And she was wearing pants. She was not dressed immodestly. Uh, even her clothing was—it wasn't like unkempt. It's just the fact that she was wearing pants. And for whatever reason, um, it caught the attention of, I guess, several different folks. And there was a sister who then, after services that evening, went to that visiting woman who's not a Christian um, and said, uh, "It was very good to have you worship with us tonight, and thank you for coming." Uh, and you're welcome to come back when you're wearing a dress. Come on. Yeah. And I learned of that kind of after the fact, uh, and I'm glad I did because if I had been there, I probably would have been inclined to confront that sister afterwards that, you know, sister, uh, th- that's fine for, for you to have that conviction about that and for that to be your standard. Um but you are creating rules where God has not created rules. Yeah. And as a result, you're obstructing the kingdom of God by that. And that's what Jesus is so angry about here. He sees people that by their rules, their man-made rules, they are obstructing God's work. And and I can't think of many more things in Scripture. Actually, this might actually be the only place in the New Testament, if I'm not mistaken, where it just specifically says Jesus was angry. Now, we know when Jesus went into the temple and he's turning over the money changers' tables, clearly he was angry there. But actually, I don't think the text says the word anger. But here, he was angry. Yeah, and this that says to me, too, that, like, it's good that Jesus is angry. I mean, obviously, everything that Jesus did was he reacted in the right kind of way to everything that happened. Um, but But sometimes we feel like anger is just inherently sinful, and it's not. Um, especially in situations like this. These are right emotions in the right place. It's a driving thing for him to want to help these people see the the greater weight of of all the things that God has taught them of, you know, I mean, it's good to have this, you know, to do X, Y, and Z, but your motivation for that is the key. And and that's, you know, that's something that I I can admit too that, uh, I mean, I've struggled with it. I know that other people struggle with it, and it makes me angry that that's a struggle in the church today because I can see Satan's trying to use that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's and I'll, I'll admit as well, it's a struggle for me as well to where we end up elevating our um, our traditions and our man-made rules and regulations above the things that are the weightier matters like mercy and goodness. And and righteousness, not my self-made righteousness, but actual God's righteousness. Right. Um, Respect for who God is. Yes. I, there's there's that passage in Isaiah one um, that I I recall uh, in the early part of that chapter. It, it's right before the section where he says, "Come now, let us reason together." But building up to that, God is rebuking Israel there uh, because they were going through. They were doing all their Sabbaths and all their feasts, and all their fasts, and all these regulations, and they had neglected the things that were the most important things, goodness and kindness and mercy and uh, those sorts of attitudes that are central uh, to everything that we are. And God says, you're making me sick with that stuff. Uh, Stop it. You know, I'd rather you just not even come to church than than to be involved in that. And so, you know... Whether you're a member of the Church of Christ or, or some other group, you know you got it. You got to acknowledge that, that that your traditions have that they're, they just have such little weight compared to to the actual will of God and to the significant things that are of God. Yeah, 
Yeah. This is a this is a, a piercing little uh, stretch here. Just these six verses. Uh, verse six. Uh, the result after Jesus heals the man. Uh, verse six. The Pharisees went out and immediately. There's Mark's favorite word. <laughs> immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy him. And if you look at that word destroy, it's more than just like we're going to damage his reputation. It means get rid of him, mm-hmm. like destroy, kill, yeah. evaporate altogether. Destroy is kind of the Disney yeah, verb. That's, that's, that's the G-rated version of yeah. let's, let's nuke this guy. Um, it, I, I do think it's funny, though, that according to the Pharisees and these guys, it was against their little man-made rules to, to heal someone on the Sabbath. But apparently, it's not against the rules to plot murder on the Sabbath. It just—it seems a lot like a business meeting is yeah. happening here. Yes. Yeah. There's just such hypocrisy. Is that here. not work? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. It seems like there probably would have been more. Actually, there would have been more work put in to the plotting of the assassination of Jesus than the actual work that Jesus did when he said to the guy, "Come here, you're healed." Actually, can we just point out that maybe? Jesus, I don't know, because scripture doesn't say anything, but Jesus' earlier statement where he was like asking them, is it to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? You think that, that he might have kind of known that they were getting ready to plot his murder and he was like letting them know in advance, like, hey, so that later when they're in their little back room talking about killing him, yeah, that that question even stung even more. He's already planting a seed, yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think it's possible. Yeah, it's true. If it's anything, true. it's just poetic irony. Uh, the Herodians here, just a side note, I mean, who are these people? Uh, th- these are not a religious sect of the Jews, the same way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes were. Uh, these are Jews, though, that had really been kind of like uh, Hellenized or Romanized. Uh, these are people who were uh, devout followers of Herod the Great, who had been placed in that position by the Romans. Uh, and so, again, there's just irony here that here's the Pharisees that are amongst the most Jewy of the Jews, and now they're here like partnering up with people that normally would have been almost like their sworn enemies. But since we have this common enemy in Jesus, because he's a all right, he seems to be a threat to to, to hardcore Judaism, but he's also a threat to, to to the Roman government. All right. Well, let's let's partner up if if just for this one occasion. Uh, but there's just I don't know, just such such hypocrisy here in so many ways going on. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you why. I think, hard not to get angry myself. I say, well, that's fair. I think I think it's okay if we do get a little angry. Um, this is our savior we're talking about here. Um, yeah. But another thing too is uh, the um, kind of the, the the interesting thing is that the Pharisees are like clearly threatened right now yeah you know they may have this like lofty air in the nose or nose in the air kind of demeanor to them but 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 you can't deny anyone who can see this going on and they all know it's kind of in the subtext of the conversations that they're having that they're threatened yeah that that, that this isn't just an insignificant little prophet going around spreading some a couple things that are kind of concerning like a little bit no like in the in the urgency of let's meet right now. This is a big deal. It's on the Sabbath, yeah. Yeah. So so Jesus demands that reaction yeah. from them. And well, to to punctuate why it was and Jesus was such a big deal, the the next verses show that. Verse seven, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. If you had a map. And you're plotting all those places. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are coming from everywhere. They have heard the the fame of Jesus has spread, and so yeah, that's that, that, that's why the Pharisees felt so threatened. You know, look, people are coming out of the woodwork for this guy, uh, and they're interested in him. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And Jesus, we've already seen this a couple times in Mark's gospel. He recognizes that there is. The potential for the, the great crowds following him, that, that's good, but that it can hinder his work that he was sent to do. And so he's got kind of some plans on how to deal with that. Verse 9, he tells the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. I, I, I could actually think about, like, this probably just shows the wisdom of Jesus choosing the guys that he chose. You know, if he chose, you know, a bunch of intellectuals, um, to be his his disciples, 
they may not have a boat at the ready when he needs it. But if he chooses some fishermen, they're going to have some boats ready. We know where to get a boat. We know where to get a boat. <laughs> and if I can get on a boat, then I know I can put a little bit of separation between me and the crowds. And I don't know, again, that may be overthinking that, but it's the wisdom of Jesus using the tools that he knows that he has you know, at his behest right then and there. Not to mention the idea of a floating pulpit is just super radical. That is pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know that I, I, I get motion sickness easy. I don't know that that we, would work for me. We could maybe set that up in the baptistry. Possibly, yeah, if, if need be, uh, if we get crowds like this. Um, verse 10, the, the, the crowd's coming, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases were pressed around him to touch him. People realized, you know, if we could just, if, if we could just you know, get a finger, you know, touch the hem of his garment, you know, maybe something will rub off uh, on us uh, in a good way. And, and maybe some of that was probably caused by superstition by the people, but we do know there is a, an example later in the, uh, in the biblical record of the woman who just comes up behind him and just touches him, and she is healed. Uh, you got to wonder, though, are these are these guys doing this for the right reasons? Or are they just there to get healed and leave? Or do they really want to be disciples? You know, again, there's uh, there's a lot of folks today who, you know, profess religion for different reasons. And uh, th- these guys just kind of... I wonder, I don't know any of their hearts, obviously, but just wondering, like, are these guys precursors to that kind of attitude? Like they're like, we know he heals people. Possibly, you know? but when we start talking about some of the crowds later on, where we're talking about thousands, all right. Once the healed folks get healed, you know, they could just go home. But obviously, not everybody goes home. Mm-hmm. You know, some people maybe that was what originally brought them to Jesus, but then when they realize, oh yeah, this is the real deal. Um, we're, we're hanging around. We're sticking around this guy, and they continue to follow him. I, I wouldn't doubt, though, that there may be worse than people because people have always been people that there probably were some. Okay, got my healing. Hey, thanks. I'll see you later and just head on home. Um, but I think for the most part, I think the Bible's trying to tell us the miracles were having the intended effect that they were designed to have, and that is to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And people now want to cling to the words that he has to say, and that's right. the important the important work that he had come to do. Uh, verse 11 and 12. When the unclean spirits saw Jesus, what they do? They fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Um, there's something probably really important here about Jesus telling demons, I don't want you going around telling people that I'm the Son of God. This is like... Who wants to get a letter of recommendation from the devil? You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to put the, the the devil on my, you know, list of, of references. You know, when I'm putting in a job application, uh, and that's particularly important because even later in this chapter, Jesus is going to be accused of being partners with the devil. Right. He's going to be accused of, you know, um, being in cahoots with Satan. And so Jesus is certainly not wanting demons going around, oh, yeah, he's he's the Son of God, and he's great, and he's yeah. wonderful. That just kind of gives more ammunition to the opponents of Jesus and the things they're going to say. That's probably why he orders them to be silent. They they have to be silent because they're under his authority. But you're, that would be a great marketing strategy for Satan is to have all these demons running around like, yeah, Jesus is awesome. You need to follow him. Everybody be like, hmm. Yeah. No. <laughs> the, the problem is there's no evidence that demons ever got converted. Uh, as right. far as we know, these demons were cast out and just continued doing demony things. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's different. You know, it's not like if somebody is a terrible sinner and they become a Christian, that like you know they shouldn't go tell people about how great and awesome God is. Um, but there's a difference there. Uh, yeah, there's something to be said too about you know, uh, I, I certainly don't want. Uh, fallen members of Christ's church who are just living in blatant sin going around like, man, this Christianity thing's awesome. Like, yeah. You know, that's... That, that that's would be the, the equivalent same. here. Yeah. yeah, that's that's not really what we want. Because uh, then, I mean, people see, yeah, they see an extremely watered-down, weakened version of it, and they, yeah, that might seem appealing. Yeah. You know? It's the right message. It's just you're, you're the wrong spokesperson for this. Uh, right. And that was certainly the case with these demons. And so, and actually, you know, so I've mentioned a couple times about just how courageous Jesus was. And, and maybe we just read some of these things about him with the demons and we don't just stop for a second and think about how courageous that is. For Jesus, he just confronts demonic spirits. 
you know, in chapter, I think it's actually in chapter 4 uh, or chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, when Jesus heals the, the garrison demoniac, and that guy is like, you know, crazy, and he has to live down in the caves, and he's wild, and his strength is unmatched. Jesus just goes up to that guy, you know. He's like, just like, sup. Yeah, like, get out of here. Just stop. Uh, but, like, just the bravery, you know, again, uh, I, I'm just impressed with that. And I, I, I probably have not given that nearly enough attention uh, in my life until, really, until reading this chapter a little bit more closely. Well, well, people think, uh, you know, a lot of people, the common narrative is Jesus is just this, you know, very... He is meek, but you know, shy and withdrawn and passive. Yeah, but but that's just watered down yeah. of of who he really is. I mean, like you said, he's a a courageous and a bold individual, and uh, he he goes into the, into the fire more than once. I mean, ultimately, we're going to see that. Uh, spoiler alert: uh, the cross. Yep. But so, verse thirteen, um, he went up to the mountain called to them those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve. So, all right, Jesus has lots of people that are disciples in the sense that they are followers, they're wanting to learn from him, um, they are students, if you will. But now he's going to pull out of that uh, crowd uh, specifically a chosen number of men that are going to follow him in a special kind of way. And, of course, these are the men that that really here in a second we're going to notice something that uh, I think kind of points out that these men are being prepared for work, not just while Jesus is here, but they're being really prepared for work that's going to happen when he's not here uh, anymore. And so verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, just another word for messenger, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. And so these are the men who are going to be the uh, chosen ambassadors. Um, it's worth pointing out, I, I, I don't think it's just a, a random choice that he's going to choose 12. I think that's drawing upon Old Testament imagery. When you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, and how those 12 tribes kind of served as the, the the beginning in some ways for this great holy nation that God was creating, um, Israel. And now these 12 men are going to kind of serve in many ways as the genesis. They're going to constitute the beginning of the Lord's new Israel, you know, spiritual Israel. And by choosing just 12 and, and drawing upon that Old Testament imagery, I think this is another way in which Jesus is affirming that he's God. I mean, who else has would dare or would have the boldness to do that other than God himself in the flesh? And so Jesus chooses uh, these 12, and it is kind of an eclectic mix. Verse 16, he appointed the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Bonagers, that is, the sons of thunder, and there's always lots of uh, speculation about that, why he gave him that kind of nickname. Uh, there's the account later in the Gospels where they both kind of boldly uh, want to just rain down thunder and fire and brimstone upon you know people who aren't serving and following Jesus. And maybe that's kind of an allusion to that. Um, don't know entirely. He could have uh, maybe said that even in a tongue-in-cheek way, like, man, okay, sons of thunder over here, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, um, th- but they do kind of work in tandem uh, in a lot of places. You know, they're the ones who later on their mother is going to ask for them to have kind of the premier spots sitting next to Jesus in his kingdom. Uh, so that shows some <laughs> boldness, if wow. not on their part, certainly on their mom's part. Um, but but these guys, of course, are fishermen. We got Peter, Andrew, who's who's Peter's brother. He also was a fisherman. Then you've got Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, who we met back in the previous chapter, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, and it is noted here, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Um, And uh, that, of course, is going to be repeated almost every time Judas's name is mentioned in the New Testament. Just because there's just forever an asterisk next to his name as an apostle. Um, and that that was prophesied uh, in the Old Testament in the Psalms. Uh, so again, 
like you said earlier, this is evidence of Jesus' foresight and his godhood of uh, mirroring those 12 tribes and, and things of that nature, but also that he's trying to, he, he's setting things up so that the prophecies can be fulfilled. Yeah. So he, he even knows, uh, he knew before that Judas was going to betray him before he did, and he pointed that out. Yep. And again, think about just the mixing all these guys together and kind of you're calling them to now all work together. Just, just think, for example, let's pull out two of these guys. Think about Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He is an employee of the Roman government. On the other hand, you've got Simon, who is mentioned as a zealot. The zealot party was kind of a radical resistance party against the Roman government. How well do you think, in, in, in normal life, would Matthew and Simon get along? Mm, not no. at all. I mean, it would be oil and water. Um, but now here, brought together in, in Christ, um, well, now we, we're going to have to figure out how to get along. And, and, and I, this is maybe one of the earliest indications of the way things are going to be when the church is fully established. You know, God's going to call people from every corner of life, every nation, every race, every background, every education level, and he's going to bring us all together into the church, into this one body, and the expectation is we're going to have to figure out how to get along. We're going to have to figure out how to work together and how to um, put aside whatever differences we may have in order to have unity in this body. And and if, if there was issues with Simon and Matthew, I'm sure Jesus saw to it that that was took care of very quickly. Yeah, and just in the short time of of how I've been a Christian so far, I've made so many different friends from so many different walks of life, of different ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, political persuasions, you know, favorite color, whatever you want to say, you name it. Uh, I, I've got friends of, of every color of that spectrum, uh, personality and, and all those things, being a Christian that I maybe would have never gotten to know. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for that because it's really challenged me a lot and yeah. caused me to have to grow and and learn to love people more. Yeah, and that's the beauty of um, God's family uh, is that we're not all, um, you know, exact clones and replicas of one another. Um, and so we're we're able to learn from each other and gain from uh, this relationship that we have with one another. Speaking of family, that's actually the next thing that we're told about, verse twenty and twenty-one. And this really kind of there's a little bit of a sandwich here. Uh, right here, and then what happens next, and then the end of the chapter. Because verse 20 and 21 says a little something about Jesus' physical family. And then we get the meat in the middle of another encounter with the scribes and the you know the opponents of Jesus. And then verses 31 through 35 again, we go back to talking, to, uh, talking about his physical family and how all that works together. So we'll say something here real quickly about 20 and 21, and then we'll, we'll add more to it at the end of the chapter. Jesus went home, verse 20, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Again, just so many people here don't even have time to even like eat a meal or can't eat a meal in peace. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, there's a lot here we don't know, because mm-hmm. we don't know which all family members in particular. Uh, maybe the thing that piques my curiosity the most is, like, Jesus' mom and his father. And there's lots of tradition that says that maybe Joseph was actually, he maybe had died and was not even alive at this point because there's not really any other mention of him in Jesus' adult life. But even if it's just Mary, it makes you wonder, all right, well, well how's Mary feel about all this? And where is where is she at? We know that his brothers did not believe in him. Uh, John 7, I think, says that. Um, and so we, we've got at least some siblings here, maybe some cousins and some other people. And them saying he's out of his mind, I don't know, I've tried to just kind of put myself in their shoes. Think about it. For the first, what, 30 years of Jesus' life, he's lived as a humble, ordinary carpenter, and he's surrounded by his family, and that's what they all know, and that was, I mean, that was his existence. And now all of a sudden, Jesus strikes out and begins his public ministry, and now he's going abroad everywhere, teaching this radical message. And now he's no longer hanging around his family all the time. Now he's actually hanging around all kinds of strange people. Mm-hmm. He's got everybody from every you know corner of uh, Judea and Galilee coming out, and they're wanting to hang around him. And to his family, you just have to imagine, 
this just looks really, it's just weird. It probably looked like a cult to them. Yeah. Very cultish. Well, this little section here, I think, my, my big takeaway just reading it is that when you decide to, to do something radical, like what Jesus is doing, or what the disciples are doing, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices are going to be like, first, like, you're, sometimes sometimes you're going to be, if you're working for God, sometimes you're going to have to make sacrifices like as far as physical things. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even eat. And then secondly, uh, their family, or his family rather, that, 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 that relationship is strained now as well. Yep. Um, again, we'll, something we'll talk about more. Yeah, we'll, we'll see evidence of that here again at the end of the chapter. And um, and so actually, all right, so we're talking about the courage that Jesus is showing here. Uh, we're we're going to see Jesus having the courage to, um, to, to, to even place priority on uh, spiritual things, even over physical things, and that includes even family. And that does take courage. That is tough. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more in here in a second. Verse 22, here's the, the middle part of this sandwich. So then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub as other translations say. To, it can be rendered the lord of the house. Um, and we'll see why that is an appropriate term here in a second because Jesus is going to say something about a house here in a second. He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons... He is casting out these demons. All right, so their accusation is, all right, the only way he's able to even cast out all these demons that he's doing this is is by the power of Satan himself. That's the only way he's able to do this. So Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan like, <laughs> think this through, guys. Exactly. Like, you literally could just ask that one question, drop the mic, and walk away. I think Jesus, right here, he's he's just doing what Jesus does, and he's putting these guys to shame in their little game they're trying to play by just being up front with them. He's like the most reasonable person in the world yeah. ever there's ever been, and these guys are just flinging this extremely. I mean, it's a hail mary, uh, desperate haymaker of an accusation. This Clearly just, does not even, just not even make sense in the least. I mean, what Jesus is saying here, it's how can Satan cast out Satan? Essentially, if I'm fighting for the devil on his team, then why am I actually doing things that is in opposition to the devil, and that is casting out the demons? You know, that, that it doesn't even make sense. If I was on the devil's team, I'd be like putting demons into people. That's not what I'm doing. Like this is just it's, it's, it's totally irrational, and and that's I think he emphasizes that even more in the next statements, verse twenty four. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. You know, if I was working for the devil in this way, then Satan's domain and Satan's power would just be uh, completely destroyed. And from the looks of it, looking around, well, that's not the case here because actually the domain of Satan is still very much alive. You know, there's lots of people that still are being possessed by demons, and not on top of that, Satan is influencing people in sinful ways. Uh, so obviously, Satan's you know kingdom has not been fully destroyed yet. So again, this doesn't even it just doesn't even work. Verse 25: If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Then verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his his house. Um, this this would have been important for, uh, for, for the argument Jesus is making here, but this is also important for the standpoint of uh, something that we still deal with today, and that is the belief that people can be possessed by demonic spirits today uh, in the way that people were possessed by demons in Bible times. And what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, in verse 27, is that there was coming a time, and actually it was coming very soon, uh, during that very century in which he was living, when he was going to enter into the strong man's house. In this case, Satan is the strong man. And he's going to bind him up. And he's going to plunder it. And that is, he's going to do that by he's going to remove demons and he's going to remove their ability to possess human beings. Jesus is going to, in a sense, he's going to steal people away from the devil. Mm-hmm. You know, here's one sense in which we could actually say Jesus is 
in, in this way, he's a thief. Coming like a thief. He's coming in like a thief, and he's going to steal people away from the traps of Satan and the demons and their ability to enter into them and to control them. And, of course, uh, that was the very reason that Jesus himself, and that's why he gave the apostles the ability to cast out demons. Obviously, when the cessation of those spiritual gifts ended, that would, if not before then, that would have signaled to the world, hey, this time of demon possession, it's over with. Because the only means by which you could get rid of a demon was by that spiritual gift. And if there's no more spiritual gifts, then it would be logical to conclude then there's no more there's no more possessing of people. Jesus has now subdued the strong man in that particular sense. Um, and I think that's the significance of that. Um, you said that you were kind of struggling with uh, making sense of that, that passage there uh, before we went went on the air. Uh, any other thoughts there about that? That does make a lot of sense, yeah. Um, and uh, I do definitely think that there's ways that demons, uh, quote-unquote, possess people today. Now, I don't mean that literal, like, indwelling inside their Overtaking body. Overtaking them, yeah. But, I mean, you look at, like, addiction. You look at, like, Things of that nature where people just are fully owned by their sin. Yeah. There's a sense where they're not literally possessing them, but but they are on the puppet strings of Satan. Yes. Um, They've given themselves over to those things that are of the devil, mm -hmm. and then they become completely under their influence. Yeah. And so if you want to use that language that they are possessed by it, then yes, that, that would certainly be true. The, the difference is, is they can be broke of that. Uh, through Jesus, you know, Ephesians six talks about you know the, the the spiritual battle that's being waged right now. That we are in the midst of a titanic struggle that's still going on between the, the works of light and the works of darkness, and uh, in the spiritual realm. And there's no doubt about it that Satan and his demons and all of his unholy angels they're at work out there. But I do think we want to be clear that this kind of stuff. What we read about here in Mark and in these other places in the New Testament where people are physically overtaken by a demon, that's not happening today. Yep. That's done. Jesus has bound the strong man in that, in that respect. Um, here's the point Jesus wants to make in all that, though. After kind of showing them the folly of what they're saying, verses 28 through 30 is, is the real thing he's wanting to convey to these folks. Verse 28, truly, the old translations say verily, that's an interesting word, and actually, actually that's probably the, the operative word here, because it's actually the word amen. Hmm. Did you know that? I did not know that. Now, normally this seems weird because amen is normally said when in a sentence? At the end. At the end. Jesus is putting the amen at the beginning. I mean, when we say amen, we're saying this is it. This is truth. This is what it's all about. And so Jesus is going to begin his statement with an amen. Amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, here's the reason Jesus said that, verse 30, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, th this passage causes lots of people lots of distress. And, right. and there's a sense in which it should. <laughs> you know, because we're talking about what commonly gets labeled as the unforgivable sin. Real quick, before we get too much into this, I got to tell you a, a little short personal anecdote of uh, my time a, as an unbliever questioning things. Uh, I, I looked, I, I looked online and, and was kind of wondering, like, is there anything I've done so far that I couldn't be forgiven of? And you know, there's obviously a lot of different takes on this, but but this was one where I was shaking in my boots when I read it because. It was like, I have, you know, blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and can I be can I be forgiven of that and things like that. And I think I think actually my, my atheistic self was kind of asking the right question. Yeah. Just yeah. Kind of a wrong attitude. But here's the thing. The fact that you were asking that question or the fact that anyone today would would out of concern for their soul ask that question, I think that alone probably proves you're not committing that sin. Right. Um, because what this is talking about, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, is it's talking about the idea of just hardened, rebellious unbelief. Mm -hmm. That despite all of the evidence that's been presented to you, you still will not believe. Yeah. And it's denying the power of God, It is, yes. Because the Holy Spirit's God. Yes, exactly. And 
And that's what Jesus saw in these people. Because again, they had seen his power demonstrated. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And they didn't deny that the miracles occurred. Actually, they acknowledged that, yep, he did that. The problem was they were denying that it really was of God. They're saying he has an unclean spirit, which means they were denying that Jesus was who he said he was, which is the Son of God. And that's the problem. And if if, if, if you know anybody who uh, is living that way, then in that sense, yeah, they, they are committing the unforgivable sin. Now, it's not an issue that God won't forgive them. It's just that the person who continues in that, God's not going to forgive them. You can't be forgiven of that. You don't want to be because you don't want to be. That's exactly right. And that's this is a this is another passage that it's a dark horse passage for the discussion, but it's a passage about free will. It is, yeah, that's uh, true. Essentially, so you, you get the you get the you get the decision. Yeah, and I and I well and I kind of passed. I thought it was too much of a softball back earlier in the chapter uh, when Jesus told the man with the withered hand to come here. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, we're talking about um, kind of works and the role that that plays in in salvation. The guy had to come here, yeah, to get it. Yeah, uh, it didn't take a whole lot of effort. He and didn't earn that. He didn't earn that, but he did have to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, who, there's who lots in, of those nuggets. Who in their right mind would say because that withered hand man came to Jesus because he walked over there to where Jesus was? He earned that healing. Yeah. And he can go brag about that healing to that's everybody. Absurd. Yeah, that's that's not gonna happen. Yeah. Um yeah, there's tons of those and we uh, well, we probably could spend the whole Bible just pointing out things like that. But honestly uh, that maybe that'll be another series. It could be. <laughs> it would detract us from what we really need to be impressed with in Mark's gospel and the thing he's wanting to impress us with over and over again is the power of Jesus in this chapter, especially the courage of Jesus. The wittedness of Jesus. Yes. Uh, in this particular section, the way he kind of calls these scribes out for the things that they were saying and accusing him of, it, it, really what we see here is the courage to call people to repentance. Mm-hmm. And that's always tough to do. That you know what? You guys ain't living right, and you need to straighten it up, uh, or you're not going to be forgiven. Um, that's some boldness there, uh, and we could all use a, a good helping and dose of that. The reality is, too. About 90% of the time that you do that, even if it's a faithful person, you run into a little bit of resistance. We see a lot of resistance in this one. Yeah, yeah. And that, that brings us to the last little section here. Here's the resistance from his family. Verse 31. So his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, well, Your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now let's get emotional here in verse 34. Looking about at those who sat around him. So here's these people that are that are sitting and are eager to listen to him teach and are eager to just be in his presence because they realize they are in the presence of God. Jesus then says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And I, of course, you know uh, that I preached on this subject uh, at the end of last year uh, about Jesus' family and the difficulties that he faced in that, sometimes the difficulties we face in our physical families. And I concluded with, with this point about how at the end of the day, this is the family that matters. Yes, sir. It's great that God blesses us with, with parents and with siblings and you know aunts and uncles and cousins and all these other people that come into our lives. Um but if those people are not serving Jesus, if they're not part of God's family, that's not true family. Right. Because that this physical family, it, it, it only lasts for a little while. But God's family, I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. Right. And that's the family we want to be a part of. And Jesus spells out very clearly in verse 35 the, the condition of how to get into that family. Whoever does the will of God. You're doing God's will, then you, you're in this family. Yeah, and that's the this this part particularly hits me kind of hard. You know, I didn't grow up as a member of the church or anything, or growing up around the church, or uh, you know, coming to that l- later on in my early adult life. Uh, it was a sense where, like, you know, I was leaving some family tradition behind, and um, it's kind of scary. And I think for a lot of people who are, you know, considering maybe uh, becoming a member of the church, that's one 
hang-up that they have is that, mm-hmm. well, what's my family going to think? Or, well, well, there's even if your family don't accept you, which if they love you, they will, your blood family, spiritual living water is way thicker than blood. Yeah. And I've learned that being a member of the church. The yeah. Christians are the family that you want to be a part of. Yeah. And it's extra good when your physical family becomes Christians because then they get to kind of be, you know, your double your family, you know, in, <laughs> right. in, in both senses. And that's wonderful. And I, you know, many people in my immediate family, that's the case. My mother and my father and my brothers and, uh, my sister-in-law, my wife, um, uh, my grandparents, um, that's great and that's wonderful. Um, but if something ever happened and they forsook the Lord and despite my pleas and, and our admonitions to come back to the Lord, there's a sense in which they're no longer my family. Right. And and Jesus is the courage that Jesus is demonstrating here is the courage um, to put to put God's family uh, above everything else, including physical family. And um, there's also the, the the standpoint that I think there's a lot of people. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of danger here coming to this. But there are some people who, by virtue of maybe having grown up. And having physical family absent, maybe an absent parent or parents, um, or maybe just didn't even grow up with siblings, there are people that I know who crave having this kind of real family relationship. And so when they find Christ and when they find the truth and they become a part of the Lord's church, they just immerse themselves in this family. It's what they've desired all along, and now they have it in in abundance. You know, now I've got you know not just. Uh, uh, a brother or a sister. I've got you know hundreds, thousands, in a sense, you know, hopefully millions of brothers and sisters. And I have not just a father, but I've got the greatest father who has ever been. And not only that, but this family reunion that we're waiting on isn't going to be awkward. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Yeah, it'll be the best family reunion of all time. And um, yeah, our older brother Jesus is setting the. Uh, the standard here of what what true family is, and has the courage to just come out and just say that, even even when it's not the popular thing to say. I can only imagine the reaction of the people when he said, "Here's my brothers and my sisters and my mother." People, <gasps> yeah. But he's he's teaching truth here. Yeah, that's chapter three. We went long today, but there's a lot. To say here, chapter four, we're going to get into some parables, and so there's going to be probably lots of, well, there will be lots of good discussion in chapter four. Parting thoughts or shots here on chapter three before we close. Tune into chapter four. Love everybody. All right. Looking forward to that next week.